The powerhouse acknowledges the traditional custodians of the ancestral homelands upon which our museums are situated. We pay respects to elders past and present and recognise their continuous connection to country. This episode was recorded on Gadigal, Darug, Wurundjeri and Bundjalung country. My name is Leetran Lam and you're listening to the Culinary Archive podcast, a series from the Powerhouse Museum. The Powerhouse has over half a million objects in its collection, from an Anglo-Indian coffee pot from around the late 1700s, to photos of mid-century cafes designed by Hungarian migrants, to the cafe bar compact hot drink dispensing machine from the 1970s. The collection charts our evolving connection to food. The museum's culinary archive is the first nationwide project to collect the vital histories of people in the food industry, such as chefs, producers, writers and restaurant owners who've helped shape Australia's tastes and appetites. Today, we're talking about coffee. There were no seatbelts or anything like that, so we'd just bounce around in the back of these combi vans and with the odd escaped coffee beans flying around with us. And then what happens is in 1950, instant coffee hits the market. It's palatable, it's not too strong, it's easy to prepare. The tea break becomes a coffee break. Ethiopia is the birthplace of coffee and coffee is a big part of our everyday life. Diwa coffee, if you really want to break down the language, it really means to have a good morning. Australia is famous for its coffee culture, but it didn't begin with Italian post-war migration, or even with good coffee. We used some pretty surprising substitutions for beans early on. Things started to change with the rise of coffee palaces during the 19th century temperance movement, and the pioneering work of Ivan Repin during the Great Depression. He offered fresh-roasted beans at his popular Sydney coffee shops at a time when stale, day-old coffee was a given. It's one of many multicultural influences that have paved the way for an inclusive Australian coffee scene that features Ethiopian coffee ceremonies and Indigenous business owners presenting native ingredients and reconciliation in a cup. I'm Tinse Elsdan. I'm an Ethiopian and Australian living in the Blue Mountain, roasting Ethiopian beans at Gemini Coffees. I'm sharing Ethiopian culture through food and coffee. Ethiopia is the birthplace of coffee. Coffee is a big part of Ethiopian culture in our everyday life. Usually the young woman does the coffee ceremony. She wear lovely Ethiopian traditional dress. It's cotton, very nice, colorful. And then we put the little small coffee table to hold the cups. Basically like tea ceremony. That's why I think the idea came to me to start Jabena Coffees. Coming to Sydney back in 2008, seeing Sydney coffee is so popular and people love coffee. And straight away I'm thinking, my childhood, like growing up, uh, we make coffee differently. And Ethiopia is a birthplace of coffee. It's not just you go to the cafe and grab your cup. Actually, we see the process and that encouraged me to brew coffee in that beautiful pot. We call it jebena, and that's handmade from clay. So I thought that's perfect name. And I'm promoting the origin of coffee, how we brew it. So what exactly is a jebana and what does it look like? 
It's beautiful when you look at it. Long neck, like balloon bottom. We don't have the flitter like any plinger or anything. We just mix it together. And then when we sit it, we sit it in angle. So all the coffee goes down. When we pour it, it will flitter itself. And usually in Ethiopian everyday life, we have coffee in three rounds. So the first one is stronger. We call it abo. And the second one, we call it tona, a little bit lighter. And then again, we pour another water. And then that one will be, the third one will be baraka, like basically finish it with the blessing. Baraka means be blessed. It brews slowly in that clay pot. It's not bitter. It's full of flavor. And everyone is surprised. If you skip to a thousand years or so after coffee was discovered in Ethiopia and you point your compass to 10,000 kilometers away, you'll get the story of how coffee ended up in Australia. Here to tell it is Paul Van Rijk, author of True to the Land, A History of Food in Australia. Coffee came into Australia first in two ways, both to do with the first fleet. So officers in the first fleet, in the Marines, brought their own private suppliers of tea and coffee. Coffee had become quite popular in Britain at the time. But they also then picked up seeds of coffee and some small coffee plants from Rio de Janeiro as they were traveling out here. And the trees were planted at Government House in pretty poor soil, so they did not survive. Once the coffee that people had brought was used up, People in desperation started to roast wheat and use that as coffee, which must have tasted pretty repulsive. But if you're a coffee addict, what do you do? Tea was always in the early years of the colony and and well into the 1950s, the drink of choice before coffee began to challenge it. And then what happens is in 1950, instant coffee hits the market. Again, it's palatable, it's not too strong, it's easy to prepare. The tea break becomes a coffee break. Pretty much every workplace today is powered by the buzz of caffeine. If alcohol is about feeling loose in the moment or feeling rough the next day, coffee has long been linked with keeping your brain sharp. When coffee emerged in Yemen over half a millennia ago, Sufi mystics used the drink to focus. Coffee houses then proliferated through the Islamic world, and German historian Wolfgang Schivelbusch reckoned that the drink appeared tailor-made for a culture that forbade alcohol consumption and gave birth to modern mathematics. In England, coffee houses became known as penny universities, where you could exchange ideas about politics, science, philosophy over a hot brew. Leaders in England and Sweden tried to ban coffee because they believed such free thinking could threaten their power. The ultimate example of coffee being used to power productivity is its starring role in the world's first webcam. The computer laboratory at Cambridge University, where the scientists love their coffee. It was so popular that they focused a camera on the percolator so that everyone in the building knew when a fresh brew was on. A year later, they gave it its own internet site, unaware that more than two million people would share their addiction. In 1993, University of Cambridge scientists created a live stream so they could keep tabs on a coffee pot shared by different researchers on different floors. 
Keeping an eye on the webcam could save them an unnecessary walk if the pot was empty, or worse, if it needed to be cleaned. Millions of people worldwide tuned in, and viewers from Japan even requested the researchers leave a light on in the computer lab so they could watch the coffee pot in their time zone. Factory owners were also anti-working class men drinking because they would turn up, supposedly, with hangovers the next morning and productivity would go down. So the temperance movements try to promote coffee. One of the ways to do this is to adapt what were called coffee houses, which had begun in England. The intellectual class would go to drink coffee and enter into intellectual debate. These are transformed by the temperance mob into coffee rooms where they can encourage working class young people to not go to the pub, not drink, but sit and read good material. And by the way, sign a temperance pledge. So that's how coffee palaces became a thing in Australia. You can find architectural plans for the Grand Central Coffee Palace Sydney in the Powerhouse Collection. Coffee palaces were like pubs, but instead of getting sloshed, you were socialising via an entirely non-alcoholic brew. Around 1890, there were coffee palaces in every capital city in Australia and in a lot of the regional centres. Places like Etuka, Goulburn, Parks, Coffs Harbour, and there's one in Broken Hill, which still exists. Paul Van Rijk recalls one temperance campaigner, James Munro, burning the alcohol licence at the Grand Coffee Palace in Melbourne and saying, this is a temperance hotel now. But it turns out maybe that wasn't the greatest move. Suddenly what happens in the 1890s is Australia becomes part of a global depression. And at the same time, of course, what you find is Actually, these coffee palaces were not making money. What kept making money throughout all this period was hotels because people still wanted to drink liquor and you could sell them at big prices. So very soon, the coffee palaces just start tearing up their temperance licences and revert to being grand hotels. Today, Australia is famous for its coffee culture and drinkers will tell you how dependent they are on their morning brew. But coffee actually used to be really unpopular here. Back in the 1870s, you needed to roast your beans over an open fire. Most people only had a few coffee cups throughout their lifetime. People preferred to use fresh roasted beans to clear away the stench of decaying meat. In the early 1900s, suppliers sold cheap imitations of coffee, like the Anchor brand tin of Coffee Essence, now in the Powerhouse collection. Coffee in these tins was cut with chicory, which may have reduced the cost but was said to taste more like warm brown cordial rather than the real thing. Let's bring back Leonard Yanishevsky to talk about chicory as a coffee substitute. He's a historian who also appears in our Oysters episode. If you wanted coffee, they would generally provide you with chicory instead of actual coffee. And if you wanted it, you could get it. But by and large, it wasn't of particular interest to British Australians. And of course, they were stereotyped as teetotalers. The myth is that it was the Italians who developed commercially the espresso machine in terms of the public usage of it. Indeed, we would argue that no, that isn't essentially the case. Here in Sydney, you had a Greek milk bar and cafe proprietor. You can't discount the influence of Italian migration on Australia's coffee scene, though. A couple of things then happen after World War I. 
Italian migrants have been coming and you get Rinaldo Massoni installing the first espresso machine in 1929 at Cafe Florentino, which continues today in Melbourne. So again, you're getting now a different style of coffee coming up, the espresso coffee, Greek coffee, thick, English coffee, weak, (laughs) espresso coffee coming stronger. At the same time, you've got this Russian immigrant, Ivan Repin, who comes to Australia and in 1930 in Sydney opens the coffee inn in King Street. What's different now about what Repin is doing, he has begun now grinding the beans fresh. You're walking past a building where you're smelling coffee being ground and roasted. It's sort of the two steps of the roaster to the barista making your coffee for you on demand. This is, again, a a different level of sophistication. What's attractive about this, of course, is particularly for the migrants post-World War I from Europe. Let's hear from someone from the Reppin family. My name's Nick Reppin. I'm the third generation of the Reppins in Australia since they emigrated in the 20s, and I'm at the Northern Rivers on what was a coffee farm once upon a time. We used to grow coffee here. My father was George, who was the son of Ivan Reppin, who was one of the co-founders of Reppin's Coffee in the 30s. They came out from Russia after the revolution in the 1920s via Manchuria and took the first boat basically out of Shanghai and then started Reppin's when they realised that There was no affordable coffee shops or lunch places in the city at the time for the workers. One of their first shops was in Castle Ray Street and they used to roast their coffee in the windows. And they did that for many years until the neighbours complained, basically, and the smell. That chain of coffee shops expanded throughout the city and they moved the importing and roasting business to Rosebud. Reppin's Coffee kept going to the mid-60s when parts of it were sold off and shut down. Reppin's made an impact because it offered fresh roasted coffee at a time stale, day-old brews were the norm. Over time, its coffee shops also stood out because they were very inclusive venues. It was very tolerant. And so it was probably one of the gay meeting places in Sydney at the time because there weren't other places that offered that sort of opportunity or were tolerant. It was welcoming to the artists and the bohemians at the time, so the Sydney Push used to meet frequently in Reppens. Inclusivity was very much part of it, probably because of the origins of the people who founded it and worked there. Originally, obviously founded by refugee Russians. Subsequently, they became the employers for a large part of the Russian community and the Baltic communities. So there were many displaced people who ran and worked in the shops. So the Estonians, Lithuanians, Latvians, Russians, Ukrainians, all that. It was a mixing pot. I've met a lot of people professionally, and when they see the name, say, ah, oh, are you related to Reppens Coffee? And usually that then follows on, yes, I did my courting there, or I proposed to my wife there. It was that sort of meeting place, I think. My father died last year and he was 93. He was still in touch with old employees or their descendants. 
In fact, an old Repens employee, Dorothy Henry, donated spoons and other Repens memorabilia to the Powerhouse collection. She worked at the Repens Coffee Inn on Market Street in the Sydney CBD from 1937 until its doors closed more than three decades later in 1970. Diving through the Powerhouse collection isn't the only way to relive the heyday of Repens. For Nick Repen, the smell of coffee can transport him back in time too. We also used to love visiting the factory because it just felt wonderful, <laughs> the roasters going. And of course, there were no seatbelts or anything like that, so we'd just bounce around in the back of these combi vans with the odd escaped coffee beans flying around with us. Were we sitting on sacks of coffee probably from time to time, bouncing around. Got to make it maximally dangerous, I think. To talk about coffee making in Australia, you need to tell the stories behind the families who brought those brews to us. They're often migrant stories, stories of people who kept the family business going, even if they had other dreams. My father... He trained as a doctor, but his father got very sick and died suddenly in 1949. So my father then moved into the coffee business to assist my great uncle because pretty well the whole family depended on that business for their income. So he was trained as a doctor, but he then moved straight into a completely different field, which was catering and coffee, which he then did for 28 years and took it on full time and was involved, A, with learning how to cook and doing chef courses, but also with the politics of better conditions for the workers. It was a hell of a displacement. He was probably 21, I think, when his father died. He did 25 years odd and then went to medicine where he had a whole separate career, heavily involved in bringing Medicare in its current form, along with the politicians, obviously. He maintained that the catering trade set him up for that because he was used to breaking up the fights between chefs with meat cleavers in the back alleys. So he thought that really set him up for a career in medical politics. In 1955, Nick's dad, George, opened the Mocha Cafe in Sydney's King's Cross. It was quite groundbreaking at the time. The Mocha was ahead of its time because it had had one of the first espresso machines in Sydney, probably not the first. That's always been a happy little debate between Pomenos versus the basement of the David Jones versus Andronicus. But anyway, and certainly it wasn't the first in the country because... Melbourne beat them by a year. There's debate over who gets credit for starting Australia's coffee culture. Nick Reppen's Russian migrant grandfather, Ivan, was clearly a big influence on Sydney's coffee scene, given what he was doing back in the 1930s. But his grandson charitably offers a different perspective. I think it's hard to debate that the Russians were leading, but the Greeks were there as well. You know, it was multicultural. There were so many different threads to the story. And I think it's really kind of wrong to try to lay claim to the leadership. I think everybody was just bringing new ideas to the country after the 1920s, and a great thing too. Nick Reppen also had his own coffee-growing stint. We're up near Newry Bar. A lot of coffee's grown around here. I moved up here for other work, but we bought the farm. We thought we might as well 
follow the family tradition and see how it works out, which we did for a while, 10, 15 years. Financially, it's a difficult trick in this country because the cost is so high to make a go of a coffee business with small acreage. And while it was fun, we had to really just let it go in the end. It was just a small output, which we used to distribute to one of the hotels in Perisher. That was our main output (laughs) each winter because they wanted locally grown coffee. Speaking about growing coffee, let's hear again from Tinze Elston. Coffee beans have been growing wildly in Ethiopia, where she's from, for millennia. There are a lot of coffee wildly growing in different parts of region. We celebrate coffee in Ethiopia. So I remember as a young girl, my aunties, even my mum, when she made coffee, they encourage us to involve like by grinding the coffee or passing the cup for the guests or passing the popcorn. We have coffee three, four times a day, sharing with our neighbour and whoever come to visit us, we pull out our coffee. We don't have to have that big meal, but over popcorn or roasted barley and chickpeas, we share that coffee over conversation, can be about politics or our community issues and we might talk about our children. I think it's very, very important, more than any other meal, basically. Let's hear from Sharon Windsor, who adds native ingredients to the coffee she sells. My name's Sharon Windsor. I'm Nambar Wailwan woman from northwest New South Wales. I'm the founder and CEO of Indigiouth and Warakiri. There's the lemon myrtle infusion, quite a subtle flavour of the lemon myrtle in it and it's not too overpowering and then the wattle seed one which just enhances the coffee flavour with its nutty rich flavour. Like the women who play a key part in the coffee ceremonies Tinze Elston grew up with in Ethiopia, women play a role in this coffee ritual in terms of gathering the native ingredients that infuse the brew. Yeah, it has that flow-on effect. We're directly supporting local business and has that further flow-on effect of supporting remote and regional Aboriginal communities and women and the young girls who are out harvesting and growing these products. So let's talk about how coffee went from something that was used to repel the smell of bad meat to a mainstream drink in this country. So coffee gets its real boost in Australia during and immediately after World War II. Post-war, you get two groups of migrants who are quite significant. Italian migrants, particularly Southern Italian migrants, who are coming to work on the Snowy Hydro project, in the building industry. And then you do, of course, get the Middle European refugees. To find out more about the Australian coffee scene, where it's been and where it's headed, let's hear from one of the oldest coffee roasters in Australia, which has paired up with Indigenous entrepreneurs to run Diwa Coffee. Jingiri, I'm Sean Andrews. Bukanaha Jaran, Bukanaha Maragam, Unya, Sean Andrews. Co-founder at Diwa. To my Indigenous business partner in, in my businesses is a guy named Adam Williams. He's a Radjuri man. I'm Peter Pachistius. I am part of the DYT, 
I look after more the operational side, which is roasting coffee. My uncle and my dad uh, started a business called Oasis Coffee in the 70s. Coffee really wasn't anything on the radar. There was some Middle Eastern coffee that was being done and really uh, pulverized or very fine product. And there was a super Italian side, which was espresso. So they started a little business called Oasis Coffee and they went about doing that change in the Australian hospitality scene where people used to you know, laugh at putting an espresso machine on your counter and things like that. Like it was just an absurdity. They were fortunate enough in the mid 80s to acquire what is now Griffiths Brothers. And it was a business that has long roots from 1879 roasting coffee, importing green teas. I started working with my dad during the holidays. I took over the business and then I recruited the other bro, which is my brother-in-law, Chris Tagais. Strongest memory as a kid working with my dad was by about 1.30, 2 o'clock, I used to just run out of steam. You know, dad would start at 6.30 and by 2 o'clock I was done. You know, so you're, you're probably 8 or 9. So the beans come in pallets, so they're 60 kilo bags lined up with one another and they peeled up and they used to just stack them and I would climb up the side of it, so three pallets high and hide and go to sleep on those bean bags. And then, you know, my dad would start yelling and I would avoid all correspondence. That's my strongest sense. The other thing that with that is um, smell. The green beans, they emit the Hessian bags, the jute bags, the beans themselves, they, they emit a certain dust and aroma and it's just unforgiving and I still smell it today I think of that memory and the smell comes back directly and it's like wow so yes avoiding work was my fondest memory indigenous language isn't always so straightforward the word diwa is a word that you use just to represent I am having a good morning or I am having a good morning now I walked in here I already knew about Pete and Chris's business Griffith Bros already in the sense of what it is and what it achieved and it being the oldest coffee roaster in the country. I'm unashamedly Aboriginal everywhere I go. You can pour a, a cup of DIY coffee and we sit down and say, let's have this conversation about reconciliation right now. And it was part of our initial plan for Adam and I back when we thought up DIY and all the things that need to occur. It was how do we actually force Indigenous culture into everyone's homes? And coffee was that, that vehicle have a drink of it, have a conversation about reconciliation. Maybe it'd be families reconciling after not seeing each other during COVID times, you know. It doesn't just have to be Indigenous reconciliation. It can be reconciliation in many forms. We need people to have conversations. We're only just getting started. And, you know, it's something to celebrate, but it's also something that we should be questioning and probably be a little bit ashamed of as Australians. That there's not more Indigenous products Sharon Windsor also offers an Indigenous-inspired coffee. Her brews, infused with wattle seed and lemon myrtle, are available through her Indigiurth business, as well as her Warakiri Cafe in Mudgee. It's become quite popular and people are really enjoying it, so just another way to enjoy native flavours in an everyday product. We serve the coffee at Warakiri and so... You know, putting the lemon myrtle coffee through the coffee machine to make a latte with it. So Australians used to only have a few cups of coffee during their lifetime. And now, well, things are really different. In the census around 2011, 22,000 people in Australia said they were baristas as their employment, right? Who'd ever heard of a barista before, like, you know, 1990 or whatever? 
there's still debate as to whether Australia invented the flat white or whether New Zealand did, but I'm rooting for Australia as having invented the flat white and taken it to the rest of the world. So before you had baristas asking for your name and whether you wanted a long black, flat white or the single origin of the week, and long before instant coffee was a fixture in office kitchens, people were substituting coffee with roasted wheat or chicory or just using their beans to wave away the smell of rotting meat. But coffee is key to society in its birthplace, Ethiopia, as Tinze Elston demonstrated through her coffee ceremonies. Through Paul Van Rijk, Leonard Januszewski and Nick Reppen, we learnt how multicultural the story of coffee is in Australia. Instant coffee came from America with Japanese origins, and Greek, Russian and Italian migrants all played a vital role in making coffee a part of everyday Australian life. Coffee is ultimately about bringing communities together. Reppens was a beacon for gay people, refugees and artists, Penny universities welcomed radical thinkers, and cafes have always been homes to outsiders and creative types. And for Sharon Windsor and Sean Andrews, coffee also offers a way to bring Indigenous culture and conversations about reconciliation to your everyday brew. In the Ethiopian coffee ceremonies, we don't give just coffee. You don't have to have that big meal, but little snack like roasted barley, chickpeas, popcorn or Ethiopian homemade sourdough bread. I think like Italian do with the little cookies. This episode was inspired by items from the Powerhouse collection, such as the coffee cups, spoons and menus used at Reppens coffee shops, architectural drawings of the Grand Central Coffee Palace Sydney and the tin for Anchor Brand Coffee and Chicory. Find a link to these objects in the show notes. This podcast was written and researched by me, Lee Tran Lam. Our executive producer is Kara Stewart, and the show is produced by Aisha Ash, and edited and sound designed by Mara Schwertvega. Our theme music is River at Work by Asa Tome, and the commissioning editors are Lisa Haviler and Callum Cooper. And a special thank you to Annie Turnbull and Harry Ray at Toby's Estate. To keep up to date with the latest episodes and new content from the Powerhouse, follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts.